Greetings. Welcome to another edition of the Perfectus podcast and our first ever cultural convo. I'm Ben Wilterdink, and today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'm joined by my Perfectus co-editor, Clay Rutledge, and managing editor, Callie Christensen. And we will be talking about some interesting cultural trends and topics that stood out for us today. From the seemingly widespread lack of purpose in the United States to the way social our social lives have been transformed by smartphones. Uh, and finally, we'll offer some thoughts on the new movie Tetris uh, from Apple TV. So I'll start things off by letting the audience know that I am enjoying a wonderful Trickster IPA from Black Raven Brewing Company in Redmond, Washington. So thanks to them. Uh, and I think to get it started, I'm going to hand it over to Callie to explain the cultural topic that stood out to her and why it was something she was interested in talking about. So Callie, take it away. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. This is actually my first ever podcast with Perfectus. So excited to get this off the ground. I suppose um, we should mention that these are not ad sponsored, but I can introduce my beverage no. of choice as well, which is just decaf coffee with a with a healthy dose of Irish cream for the afternoon. <laughs> Excellent. And if they did want to sponsor it, they could certainly do that. <laughs> we welcome it. <laughs> My topic um, for today is, is tough to narrow it down to just one, but I was really struck by an article in the free press um, earlier by Catherine Boyle called Get Serious About Purpose, um, where she's really looking at kind of where we're at in terms of purposefulness in America. And what I found maybe most striking about it, she had some polling and some trends about how Americans are viewing things that was reported in the Wall Street Journal, but kind of pulls it together in the end with the idea that when it comes to purpose, when it comes to fulfillment, you cannot be enough for yourself. You have to turn outward. You have to go to other people for that purpose. And I think in our current age, that's almost a countercultural narrative where we're being told a lot that you are enough. You are everything you need. And this flies a little bit in the face of that. And I know Clay has been doing a lot of work on meaning and some of it connected to patriotism and religiosity. And she touches on a lot of those things. So I thought I'd bring that one forward today to get your guys' thoughts. Yeah, that is really similar to some of the stuff that you've written about, Clay, about sort of the need for a more outward focus uh, on when it comes to meaning and purpose, which I'm sort of taking meaning and purpose to be pretty interchangeable, at least the way that Catherine Boyle is talking about it here. Um, so can you, why don't you walk us through a little bit? Does that kind of jive with what you've written about? It kind of seems like it does. Yeah. Yeah. First, I mean, it's definitely the case that purpose and meaning are, are related. I think that the most common way people think about it in the field of psychology, existential psychology in particular, is that purpose is a subcomponent of meaning so meaning is the broader category and purpose is that like that that almost like goal directed part of meaning like i have a role to play like i have purpose and another way to think about uh, the the connection is to say people want to have people want to feel like they have a purposeful role to play in a meaningful cosmic drama that's the way i think about it like we want um it's not there's a broader narrative there's a broader story and there's broader relationships and purpose is like our agency in that. And 
Um, but we also want the world to make sense, you know, and we want our lives to make sense, to have meaning. And so I definitely think that, that, that um, those things fit together. And in terms of how, you know, the, you know, her writing on that. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things that psychologists discovered when they've measured purpose, whether they've, and this includes work that I've done, work that we've done at Archbridge, um, work that groups like Pew Research Center has done, and then, you know, a lot of academics who have done more scholarly approaches to it. Um, basically, the, the, the common thread is that our sense of meaning and purpose comes largely from the sense that we matter in some way. And if you think about mattering, it's really a social thing. Even if you think about it in a very like religious, or spiritual sense, like I matter to God. Well, that's a relationship, right? You know, I was, I was, my life was, was given to serve some purpose. Well, the purpose is is in a relational context. So I think it's definitely the case that um, purpose is outward oriented, even if there's clearly like an inward focus, like introspection or reflection or decision making process that goes on we have to find our purpose right we have to discover it um we have to work towards it and all that is very much like mental and it's in our own heads but the way you find it is you push yourself outwards into the into the social and cultural world for sure yeah callie you mentioned that it was sort of almost like a countercultural uh message and i think that that's true I know, you know, in kind of the 2010s, maybe even early aughts, when new atheism was gaining a lot of ground and there was a lot of like internet forums that people were talking about that, debating about that. Um, I think from my perspectives, I grew up in the Bay Area in California and then moved to the East Coast and worked in DC for a while uh, before moving out here to Alaska. Um, the general takeaway to me seemed to be okay, we live in a material universe and that's basically all there is. Uh, nothing really matters, but you can make things matter by, by like a sense of will. And, um, but underlying that, it's just sort of like a wink and a nod, but it doesn't actually matter. Um, and I think that seems to me like where a lot of our cultural conversations have kind of defaulted into. Um, do you think that's right? I mean, obviously that's different for religious communities but i think in general as a culture that sort of seems to be where we're at is do you think that's a correct diagnosis like as from that like a generic perspective i think it might be i i think that does kind of seem to be the the trend that we're seeing certainly um a lot of people were alarmed i saw the this wall street journal poll all over twitter and everything people were alarmed to see just these the poll actually asked people about the percentage who say that the values are very important to them and the values of patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement all went from being, you know, at or, or well above 50 percent um, in 1998 to just plummeting um, over the past couple of years and being just at all time lows this time. Um, with the only outlier being the value of money, which is trending upward. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting that kind of gets to this, this social aspect that you're talking about and this kind of turning inward aspect is we might think of money as being not social or as turning inward about maybe going on more vacations or, or being very materialistic. 
but the poll doesn't ask about the value of work. And to the extent that money is a proxy for work, what we could be seeing here is that people's purpose is just moving from more social, family-oriented relationships to more work-based purpose, which I do think there's a lot of research out there that says work-based purpose does meet that criteria that Clay described that makes you feel like you matter and you're making a difference and you're being a part of, of an important narrative and it does involve other people. What we can't see here is, is money about money or is money about work? And I think almost no one would disagree that especially amongst young people, there has been a move away from those maybe more traditional values into more of a work-based um, purpose or even uh, a materialistic-based purpose. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes sense. I also kind of wonder, and I have no evidence whatsoever to, to, to speak to this, but I also kind of wonder if a lot of the cultural messaging we're seeing, um, especially sort of around young people about money as, as like a barrier to these other things that we've traditionally thought of as, as meaningful. So, for example, you see this story all the time. Well, young people can't start families because they can't afford homes. right? You see stuff like that, right? And so I wonder if at some level people are like, oh, like, well, I need money to live a meaningful life. And all these other things that people are talking about, um, I have to have money to get to them. And I'm being told <laughs> that inequality is growing, that, you know, that the affordability of the American dream or life, you know, of a comfortable life in America is out of reach. Now, I don't think these messages are correct. But I think that they're, they're they're very common, and so I kind of wonder too if this is like a very um, people don't really know like they don't really know, and they're not being taught that you know the these these kind of old ideas of core ideas of what gives a meaningful life, um, but they still at some level kind of intuitively know, but it's been channeled through this messaging of well you need money to do anything. I mean you need money to have children, you need money to get married. I don't have any statistics on me. Maybe you, maybe you two know, but like, I I see these stories every now and then about like how expensive weddings are. Um, Kelly might know something about this, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but it's like, but you, but it's kind of framed as a barrier. Like, oh, I can't have a yeah. meaningful marriage because I can't afford this Instagram worthy um, wedding. And it's just like, well, I would disagree with that, but I but I do think that message is out there. Yeah, um, I'm currently planning my wedding. Um, I'm getting married next month, which is very exciting. But I certainly, I think, um, I'm sure everyone always feels like the cost of everything has gone up. We know we're in an inflationary environment, but on the, the other side of COVID, I can personally attest to the fact that the wedding industry <laughs> um, is, is, is alive and well. Um, and, and I do think that there's maybe something to that, that, um, that some people's standards um, for how much money they think it takes to do something, especially in a social media age where you can see the very, very best of everything mm -hmm. and use that kind of as a, a comparison, not just as an aspirational, you know, celebrities, like it maybe would have been a few decades ago, but people you actually know, you might be raising that 
bar a little bit and thinking that you need more money compared to other people who might be saying, no, that really isn't necessary. We also know that you can get married for, you know, whatever the, the license costs um, at the county office. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be I'll be the Debbie Downer on this podcast because <laughs> I I don't think that money is a good uh, proxy for work here, and and partly that's because I I see money in that poll where again this is the percentage who say these values are very important the value of money from 1998 to 2019 and that was the only one to increase from about 25 percent to a little over 40 percent, um, and I think it's money here is a proxy for sort of like self-directed freedom, right? Like people mm. being able to choose certain consumption things. So, And it's not to say that money isn't important. And to your point, Clay, I have seen a lot of people mention this idea that, oh, you know, millennials can't afford houses. They can't afford these other things that were a part of the American dream. And there is a lot of back and forth on that. I mean, housing has gotten more expensive and some of the more, economically dynamic areas a lot of that has to do with uh supply not being able to keep up with demand because of regulations and community you know what we call not in my backyard nimby right. nimbyism and so that's all i don't want to minimize that but at the same time um the average house size is much bigger now right. than it was in like the 70s um you know it's there is this point of like well you know, in the past, things might have been cheaper, but they were also kind of crappier, too. Right. And, and people don't necessarily recognize that. And, and you know, on the marriage thing, uh, you know, I got married in 2019, just before the pandemic. And uh, it was very cheap because we just did it at the uh, at the courthouse. And, you know, it's um, right. that's definitely if if people don't want that to be a barrier, it, it won't be. And so part of right. me thinks that this is one of those things where. Uh, people might be throwing up these obstacles that I don't want to say they've invented them because there are some real, like it ha costs have risen, but at the same time, you know, you can get around that. You don't have to do those things. I, I wonder to the extent to which uh, those are kind of excuses for putting off these decisions or, or not going in those directions when if you wanted to get around those or get over those burdens, you could. Uh, yeah. and, and we're just not really seeing yeah. that. I, I agree with that. I mean, that's why I, I guess that's what I meant when I was like, I think this narrative's out there, but I, but I think it's wrong. You know, I, I, I don't think it's a crack. I mean, I think you can simultaneously, like he's, like he's, like you said, recognize that, you know, things are dynamics, certain things I've gotten more expensive, or there might be challenges that young people have faced now, like, you know, the growing cost of, of college, for instance, um, but at the same time, I think you're absolutely right. I think if you want to do something, you know, you can do it. I got married, you know, almost 25 years ago, so it's not a good comparison comparison to the <laughs> two of you. But like we were just, you know, we were seniors in college. We didn't have any money. And we got married. We had like a backyard wedding. It wasn't quite as cheap as yours, Ben, at the courthouse. But it was like very, <laughs> very small. And um very very affordable so obviously i mean people people can do those things even with the housing thing and, and correct me if i'm wrong but i believe i have seen data that millennials are are actually just as likely to be homeowners as people in previous generations in that same age 
group. So like the, the narrative <laughs> that millennials don't have wealth or don't own homes, from what I understand or from what I've seen, isn't true. Like they're actually on track as to similar track or maybe even above um, previous generations. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Con- maybe contrary to popular belief, that's right. Right, right. So I think the narr- I, th- I think the the narrative that's constantly, um, you know, co- people are constantly being hit with it is incorrect, or at least partially incorrect. But that might be why they're like latching on to. I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe not. But that might be the most generous interpretation. Be they're <laughs> latching onto this idea of like, oh, like other things are important, but money is everything. I mean, it just seems like increasingly that's what's that's the narrative in in academia that everything boils down to economic inequality as opposed to other right. you know variables yeah and i to to go back to your point ben that that money you know might not be a good proxy for work in this survey i actually do agree with that you know i wish that they had asked about work so that we could see mm-hmm. where that fell in this because i you know if if money is important then work furthers the end of having more money, if that's the thing that you're valuing. Um, I don't know that it's a good proxy for it. And then for some of these other things, I mean, it's it's opposed. And so there could be those types of effects happening here. You know, for example, if, if what you really value is having a lot of disposable income and, and having more money for that, that self-directed freedom, more children is going to be, um, is, is those values are going to be intention, you know, even at a very basic level, religiosity might be intention with, with valuing more money because you tend to, you know, be encouraged to give your money away or to tithe or, or give to the poor. And, and obviously lots of people in America do that with or without religious beliefs. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to see that some of these things, um, they, if you valued having more children, it'd be tough to simultaneously value maximizing money because children cost money. <laughs> they, they take more right. than they bring into the household. <laughs> and so I don't think that that's terribly surprising. And I do think this idea of people wanting more freedom that that might to do to do whatever they want to do might be more what what the money is indicating you mentioned earlier kind of the the rise of the new atheism and and i know clay has written before about some of the well-being um and wellness trends and how they've kind of tried to be substituted in for meaning and purpose in the vacuum that used to be held by traditional religion that's discussed in this article and I think one of the things that I thought about that is America, I think, used to have much more uniform senses of purpose that mm. most people that you would have come in contact with were drawing their purpose from the same institutions and the same institutions as you. And I think what we're seeing now is a lot more diversity in that, that the types of things where people are searching, they might not all be equally effective. But if we at least say like where people are trying to find purpose and meaning, there's so many more options on the table of people pursuing different, maybe some more new age things versus people trying to find meaning and purpose in being a pet owner instead of a parent or, you know, different types of organizations or civic or social justice work. Um, And I think that might... um, create this sense that there is less purposefulness 
because we don't all have a shared, united sense of where we're finding our purpose in today's America compared to what I'm sure these polls showed a few decades ago. Yeah. Oh, and to your point, Kelly, about the money and family and stuff being in tension, um, you know, the, the, the tension might go the other direction as well, which is because people are having fewer kids, I mean, if you're once you get my age, you start and 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 you have an iPhone. Apple News knows everything about you, and they start funneling stories to you about retirement and planning for, you know, all this <laughs> stuff about saving for retirement. Um, one story I, I see pretty frequently, or some variant of, is you need to save more money than previous generations because basically you're not going to have anyone to take care of you. Like you're going to have to pay for that. <laughs> And and so the, the that's another way of thinking about that tension is is part of the this 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 me like this me focus that you were talking about Ben some of it a big part of it I, I do think is like oh I want to do what I want to have the freedom to do what I want to do but we're also seeing this message of families are getting smaller people are moving away from families like you have to pay for more of your own um, life right you can't depend on family you can't depend on neighbors. And so those things kind of feed each other, you know, they kind of reinforce each other. It's like, yeah. well, we're having fewer kids, so I need more money. Well, if I need more money, then I sh- maybe shouldn't be having kids. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of yeah. an interesting or sort of an interesting trajectory, I think, as a culture. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I don't I don't think it's leading anywhere great. Um, right. You know, I think and this is something we've written about before with Perfectus, but uh, you know, a lot of the functions that used to be filled by family or community or neighbors or whatever are being replaced by the market. And I love the market and it's really, it is really great at solving problems and it's, it's really great at giving people what they want. Um, and so that can be a good thing or a bad thing. But right. um, I think, I think you're definitely seeing uh, that trend for sure. And, and it, and it is reflected and, People having you know fewer kids, so there's going to be fewer healthcare workers. Um, the right. obligations are not quite as strong as they used to be, uh, and then it does kind of feed back into itself, where it's like, well, I need to save more money, or I need to make these different decisions. Um, I, I guess probably my my biggest worry about sort of this idea of like, well, it's all it's kind of centered on the self. It's saying you know I should direct these goals in the way that I want to direct them. And I think that that is uh, less likely to produce long-term flourishing than in the past where you might have inherited more goals or you might have inherited kind of a tradition that you didn't rationally understand quite as well, Mm. but it was giving you the benefit of wisdom from other people that lived a long time before you. Um, that you don't necessarily have to come up with that on your own, which I right. think is, I hesitate to say impossible, but impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Clay, you mentioned getting all those ads on your on your smartphone, so we can right. maybe we could turn to our to our <laughs> next topic, which is um, uh, the the one that I brought, which was it's an article, I guess it's kind of an essay in uh, the New Atlantis. It's called "The Joy of Losing Your Phone." And it's by Claire Coffey, 
Uh, and basically it tells uh, a pretty interesting story about her travel experience where she was in, I take Mexico, uh, I believe, uh, Plaza Garibaldi. And she got out of the car and she left her phone in the taxi and basically decided rather than trying to have someone call it right away or going right back to the hotel or trying to figure something out, she just decided to kind of roll with it and uh, sort of wrote about how, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't all have smartphones and, and you know, the way things used to be where you relied on the bartender to give your friend a message if you had to go home early or if there were other uh, ways to kind of facilitate this this communication. Uh, and basically, uh, the way I took the article anyway was it was kind of a, a lament that there was a little bit of loss of, of personal capacity and independence that we've sort of offloaded to the smartphone. Um, for, for as many benefits as it brings, uh, we're kind of missing the chance to have chance encounters or to see strangers as potential friends or, or that kind of thing. Uh, I, I thought it was a, a pretty interesting article. I'm curious to hear what you guys thought about it. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. I, I was a late adopter to the smartphone. I mean, I definitely rely on it heavily now, but I was very, very resistant to, to get a smartphone. <laughs> and even when I got the, the cell, my first cell phone, I was um, one of those people that just always, when I came in, just dumped it, like in the, you know, with my keys and everything else and just stayed You didn't in one keep place. it with you? No, I never kept it with me. And even when I got the smartphone, you know, my until recently, I largely didn't keep it with me. And now I've now I just am using it for so many different functions that I do right. tend to keep it um, keep it with me. I and you know I'll give my wife credit. I was able to largely not keep the phone with me because she had hers. And if you're a parent, you keep your phone with you. Um, and, and if you have kids that are old enough to be out of the house doing things, teenagers and stuff like that, you know, you keep it with you and for that reason. Like you can be contacted at any time or if you have, you know, elderly family members or whatever, anyone who, you know, once you ditch the landline, that's the way you're going to, people are going to get in touch with you. Um, but yeah, I was very, very resistant to it, but now I'm like all in and <laughs> And I definitely probably use it too much. But one thing I liked about the one thing I liked about the article that I or one thing that I felt like a real connection to was I haven't lost my phone, but I've had um, situations where I haven't had phone service because my wife and I use a, a like a like a budget plan basically, and it's not always got the greatest <laughs> service. Um, and in those experiences, I've I've felt that like simultaneously been a little bit terrified like oh no like i don't have you know <laughs> i don't have the ability to look something up or find something but then at the same time liberated because i'm like okay now i'm not going to be staring at my phone or like typing things and i'm just going to wander around and i do think there's some a lost adventure like when we rely on the the phone like of just and in those experiences where i've haven't had service um or I've left it like in, you know, not lost it, but like left it in a hotel room or something like that. I do find that I've, I've had some unique adventures because I've done stuff I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have done. So I'm a big advocate of, uh, of cell phones, smartphones, but I do think there is something about something organic about life without it. That's, that's interesting. 
Yeah, I think for me, um, I'm the youngest member of the <laughs> of the group today. I grew up in a time where um, I had my first smartphone before I was an adult, before I was 18. And so I had never had the experience, not really, of traveling on my own without a smartphone. You know, maybe there weren't one, you know, the first few times, maybe there wasn't Uber yet, or there wasn't a specific app, but certainly always Google, always Google Maps. Um, for me, having grown up in rural North Dakota, the smartphone fell like it opened doors to possibilities for travel um, because like I would have been so intimidated by traveling in certain cities where I wouldn't have known routes or safety or how to use certain public transportation and it made it all so much easier. And I think in a big way, it did democratize travel and some of those things because you didn't need to have this specific skill set or you didn't need to spend time cultivating the skill set because you could just go out with the phone, figure it out on your way, and you'd have access to Google to ask whatever questions you need to ask along the way. So in that sense, it kind of opened up adventure for me. I probably feel that way because I don't have any nostalgia for the time before. I know like my parents personally, like they would see that as a loss. I don't have the skill set of, of reading a map and laying out a multi-state, you know, multi-week long road trip and figuring out the best roads to take and avoiding tolls. I don't have that skill set. Maybe that's a loss to me. You know, certainly some people would think it is. I'd like to think that whatever amount of my time and energy and mental resources would have had to go to those skill sets. The phone has opened them up for me to focus on other things that might feel more useful to me. So in that sense, I'm very pro the phone in terms of travel and just on a very personal level. We just had this conversation because we're going on an international honeymoon um, in Europe next month. And we were trying to decide, do we want to pay to have phones? Do we want to try to be, do we do both my um, soon-to-be husband and I need to have our phone? Do we need to have internet ac access? Do we not? Can we get away with not calling people? You know, a, a honeymoon is different because you're not traveling alone. You're traveling with someone, and you maybe have a very good and intentional reason to want to be a little unplugged from work and family. And so we're going to try to do it with a, a smaller digital footprint. But I think that'll be, it will be an adventure for the two of us because we've both grown up in an age where we, especially in another country, have relied a lot on, on cell phones. And I imagine um, I can report back, but I think there's a good chance that Google still becomes a, a big companion of ours on that trip. For me, the biggest um, loss that she points to that I can identify with is just the fact that we've kind of turned to the phone to offer us a safety to say like this is what's going to keep me safe because i can turn to it instead of people i can carry it with me so that i don't have to worry about something happening to me if i'm out by myself those are all good things especially for women in bigger cities or, or traveling alone on the other hand because we've had fewer reasons to trust our fellow citizens I think we now just don't trust them. Like now I I have not grown up in a in a period where I've um, had any practice at going up and asking strangers for help or walking with them or introducing myself to to new people. And there's 
there is a big missed opportunity. I'm sure there's tons of interesting people I haven't met and interesting conversations I didn't have because I was having those one-way interactions with a phone. And and I do think that we don't always recognize the trade-offs we've made um, for human connection because we've turned to the phone to provide that safety and, and to be that resource. Yeah, I wonder, too, if there's kind of a gendered component to this where, you know, I I feel less... I mean, I'm not like a big guy. I'm actually a little on the shorter side. Um, but I you know, I'm just not that worried about certain things, you know, and, uh, and even even with the phone, sometimes I do. I mean, I'm not the most extroverted person, but I've never had any sort of uh, problem asking someone for directions or, you know, maybe striking up a conversation at a bar, uh, you know, with with somebody I'm just happy to be sitting next to. Um, there's definitely less of that with the phone, because I'm guilty of it, too. If, like, if I'm at a bar, if I'm getting something to eat, it's a lot easier for me to just scroll Twitter or whatever, or check emails or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, there is that kind of component of it. Uh, if anything, the article made me want to like leave my phone someplace when I'm going out for an evening or if I'm going out, you know, with my wife, I, I actually think I might try something like that. I don't, it's hard for me to think, you know, would it be that different? But I just don't know. I I, I kind of think that having your phone is one of those things like, Remember in COVID where they're like, oh, don't touch your face or something like early on when we didn't really know. And then you kind of for the first time in maybe ever, I counted how many times I touched my face during the day. And it's a lot. And, you know, and it's not I never think about it intentionally. And I suspect something similar is happening with the phone where if I think about it, I'm like, well, I'm not really using it that much. Like, is it a big deal if I just keep it in my pocket and maybe I just try to be a little more extroverted? But I really think that having it not there might actually be helpful but i also can understand that like i'm a guy and not traveling internationally so like that probably um is has an effect you know on on my on my decision there yeah i think that's true i think that's an interesting point too Callie, that you made about for you it's you saw it as like the opposite like opening up more opportunity for expansion and you know or adventure and i was thinking about like in almost a sci-fi way i mean we are we obviously already have like google translator and things like that but in, in some ways i can see it as helping people get over like if there's some barrier even if it's just in their head like i'm not going to go to this place because i don't speak the language or i don't do that like if you had this little extra tool um where you could I don't know, use your, like you go to another country, you're looking at a menu, you don't know what's on there, but you can take a picture of the menu and you have an app that translates, you know, that immediately translates it or something like that. Like, right. I can but see that. But then you don't as, get to be surprised. Right. You then don't you get don't to be surprised be, by true, ordering right? Like there's a, um, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely like a trade-off, but it's like you can imagine it like, or like a person, you know, like you said gendered, but maybe there's like a personality difference. Right? For more adventurous people, they don't need for people who are higher and kind of like risk taking, I don't mean that necessarily in the bad way, but just for people who are more willing to just put themselves out there, maybe the phone um, isn't, you know, really helping them um, as much. But for more introverted people or people who are a little bit more like um, standoffish or whatever, maybe it, you know, opens some doors, but also maybe it's a barrier for them in, in other ways because they're, when you're forced to talk to people, 
maybe that's good for introverts um, and you can just sit in the <laughs> bar and stare at your phone. Uh, I know I'm using like so far our examples have been bars. <laughs> we go other places too. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think for me, like phones have just become so much, and I don't think we, you know, there. I'm sure there are apps out there, but at least for myself, like I'm not good at all at self-regulating what I mm. use it for. Even though I technically probably could, I could choose to say I'm going to have a phone on me and only use it for calls, you know, only answer it if someone calls me, but I'm not going to look on any social media or, or use any apps while I'm out and about. Um, or you could think of it as, you know, I want to use it as my camera, because to be perfectly yeah. honest, like I, right, I'm not yeah. bringing another camera on my honeymoon, like this is this is it. Um, but cameras. I don't want to use it <laughs> yeah. for other things. And I think in theory, we think we can do that. But to your point, Ben, about sometimes if you just lose the phone or you just leave it at home, that's when you actually realize how much. Because I think even if I just don't think we're very good at self-regulating that at all. Like phones are still so new. And I think even though some parts of it might be very advantageous to us and then the other parts, it maybe would be good for us to turn away from. I don't think we're good at doing that unless the phone is is physically taken away in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are definitely aspects of it that are borderline addictive, you know, like mm -hmm. we've talked like social media uh, and some things like that. But uh, another thing that can be addictive is video games, which is definitely <laughs> a topic that I want to make sure that we get to kind of one of the OG handheld uh, video games that I think probably everyone on this call, I assume, has played a lot of Tetris. I've certainly played a lot of Tetris. I mean, um, it is despite coming about in like what, 1988, 1989, um, that it's still pretty ubiquitous. I mean, people, I still really like it and it's still part of the culture in an interesting way. And so Apple TV just put out uh, their new movie about it. And so Clay, you had recommended it to me and I, I did get to see it uh, since we, since you brought it up. Um, I thought it was really good, but I want to hear, you know, what, what did you think of the movie? Why did you think it was worth uh, talking about? So I loved the movie, and I originally I originally wanted to watch the movie from purely like a nostalgia point of view. Um, our our listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm holding an original oh! Game Boy original. right now. I the big fat, the fat Game Boy, and and I'm gonna like just just so people know, it's I think I can fire it up <laughs> to where at least you can hear um, the Tetris. Oh, the sound right. of nostalgia. Right. So I have, yeah, so this, I've got the, um, yeah, so I've, I, I've been playing that, like since watching the movie, <laughs> put the four AA batteries in. So yeah, I originally watched the movie because I was pretty stoked for it from a nostalgia point of view. And I really liked the movie for that. But in addition to that, which I didn't expect because I didn't really know the story, uh, uh, of Tetris and really the movie's about not just the creation of the game but the but the you know how it got licensed for a western audience because it was made by a programmer in the in the Soviet Union um, which of course was a communist um, country so how did you know how did it get licensed and 
and released and shared with the world. And I just thought there were so many cool things about the movie. There was the nostalgia component, but really it was a story of um, internet, like friendship, you know, formed uh, across, Mm -hmm. you know, people living in different ideological systems, like the capitalist West versus the, you know, communist East. Um, It was a story of like, um, not, I don't think it was like heavy handed, but I think it did a good job of like showing why communism is, is not good <laughs> um, and why it's, yeah. why it squashes um, people's ability to, you know, obviously not create this guy created this awesome game, you know, uh, under the framework of communism, but he wasn't able to benefit from it. Right. He didn't. Um, I guess we should say there's. We should have had like a spoiler alert. Maybe I won't. Say, maybe I won't say too much about the movie. Um, but like he, you know, he, the the creator of the game, was living in the Soviet Union. So any attempt to license it or you know sell it to outside of com- the communist country, the money was going to go to the state. Right, it wasn't going to go to the creator. Right. And I just thought it was like a cool movie about about that clash of ideologies between like capitalism and communism. But again, not in a, not in a, not in a real, like not in a political way so much, not in a over the top way, but really in a humanizing way, which is what I liked about the story of like, um, and even capitalism was, there was a nuanced portrayal of it. I think it wasn't just like communism, bad capitalism, good. You, you got to see like kind of the greedy business, like, underhanded sort of like tactics but then the more like i think positive and um you know portrayal of of it as well so i think that i just thought it was kind of a a, it was kind of a cool thing and then it was just like a neat it was a neat story and a funny story i can't vouch for how accurate it is how true to life it is i did try to look a little bit afterwards and it did seem like it it like a lot of it was from what i could tell based on at least the, the the main factual events. I'm sure some of the dramatizations in it, um, some of the like chase scenes and stuff like that, probably like <laughs> yeses were exaggerated, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, and I thought it was kind of, uh, um, I don't know, wholesome is like a strong word, but like it was like it 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 wasn't a it wasn't cynical, it wasn't dark, it wasn't um, extremely like violent or like it was something. Yeah, it I was fun. Kids would, yeah, it was fun. It was it, it was. It was positive. It was fairly lighthearted, but I felt like it dealt with like a serious, a serious issue about intellectual property, about creation, uh, yeah. innovation, trade, you know, international business. All that stuff was in it, um, but it was it was enjoyable. I thought they oh, I did a good say, job at um, what I was. Um... <laughs> oh yeah, let us know. Let us know. So I'm drinking the Fargo beer. Um, so Callie will know about Fargo Brewing and somebody I'm not holding on. I haven't lived in Fargo for almost a year. I'm not holding on to like year old beer. Like somebody brought <laughs> me um, somebody who was in Fargo not that long ago, brought me a six pack from Fargo Brewing. Um, and I have this glass that, again, people won't be able to see, but it's from Fargo Brewing. But they made like a um, it's a gra- it's a like the graphic is it's made to look like Super Mario Brothers, the Nintendo but instead of, <laughs> instead of like the little piranha plants coming out of the warp pipe, it's like hops. Um, <laughs> so it's just kind of like a funny twist on okay. Super Mario Brothers. But I thought that would be fitting, you know, Nintendo, which was the company that ended up licensing um, Tetris to be packaged with their Game Boy, which 
presumably helped you know make it a gigantic financial success uh, but anyway th- those are no the- that's awesome clay you're very on brand today i applaud you that's uh that's really great <laughs> and, and everything <laughs> props and hops <laughs> delicious hops right um but yeah, no, I I agree. I really liked Tetris. I thought it was it was a fun movie. Uh, one of the interesting things to me, you know, speaking about the contrast with the Soviet Union, uh, is kind of the way in which so this was like in the late 1980s, like 1988, 1989 is sort of like when this is set, and the main issues in the Soviet Union, obviously this is like right before the collapse, were all centered around corruption. Right. So like mm-hmm. a lot of the the uh, big players on the Soviet side seem to have an awareness that like this is ending, like there's something, you know, it's just kind of like this mode of like grab what you can. Uh, and so I thought so I thought some of the characters on the Soviet side were really interesting in that context, mm-hmm. where even even within that context, there were some who were very much of the opinion of like, let me grab what I can. Right. And some who were like had a had still had a sense of obligation and patriotism to the Soviet Union, even though it didn't benefit them. So I kind of, that was interesting. But to me, it really contrasts with another really excellent series that shows some pieces of the Soviet Union, which was um, Chernobyl, the HBO series Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah. Where that, I thought, really did a good job of showcasing sort of the more systemic breakdowns inherent in the Soviet Union, like in the way that like, their politics were set up in the way that the accountability was missing and the, the way that the incentives were aligned within the system uh, led to sort of this, these breakdowns. And I just, I thought I'd mention that, that Tetris did not really touch on that side of things mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that those were still present, but it really touched on a breakdown in the form of corruption rather than just sort of like systemic incentive misalignment which was more yeah. what I thought would be like a Chernobyl type um, drama. But no, it was, it was, it was really good. Callie, did you get a chance to watch the movie? I have not seen it. So I'm, I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to make, make it um, to see that the primary um, barrier is that we don't have Apple TV. So I'm going to have to just invite mm. yeah. myself over somewhere to give it a watch. <laughs> um, but one thing I wanted to ask you guys about, because I, you know, I've heard you guys talk about it a little bit. I've seen some reviews and and coverage of the film, and the creator was in communist, you know, the USSR. Um, the person trying to get a license was from the states, but Nintendo was a Japanese company. Um, does the movie touch mm-hmm. on it all? Like, what was the dynamic there? Because it would have, um, you know, it, a market based system, but not not maybe the one that we're used to in the States. And so yeah. I guess I'm, I'm curious about that component of it all, because it was an American securing the rights, but securing them for a Japanese based company that would eventually sell to, you know, extreme profits in the West. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't, so Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, so the creator lives, but actually the Russian guy also lives in America now. Um, but, um, he wasn't the guy who was licensing it was living in Japan and I think he was Dutch. 
Oh, okay. So not um, an American. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Now well, he was he was Dutch born and Dutch. he wasn't American. He went to college in Hawaii where he met his wife. That's right. But she was from Japan. Right. And so yes, our our main character lived in Japan. Right. And then um but the way so it was like an international thing too, because you're right, Kelly. Um Nintendo is a Japanese company, but there is another Nintendo of America. Um, I think had a. Um, I don't know the exact nature of of their relationship. There is like Japan calls the, from what I understand, like Tokyo calls the shots for Nintendo, but Nintendo of America obviously understands the the, the Western audience, and um, and there I think there are some differences, um, even though they answer to to Tokyo, and I don't know, but he definitely in the movie was going to the u.s to see where they were like showing him the prototype of the game boy um if, right. if i remember so that. but his okay. first stop he had to win over the japanese ceo Correct. first yeah. to kind of like get his foot in the door here uh so like there is that part of it but kind of like once once that hurdle was was jumped he was dealing mainly with like nintendo us which is based in seattle or was i, I don't right. know if it's yeah no i think that's right yeah but um, but yeah, they they didn't really get into the weeds, Callie, on terms of like the difference between the like certain economic policies from the U.S. to Japan. It was more. Of, it was more of that like certainly would have probably been a less interesting movie. <laughs> right? um, right. You know, like in terms of the cultural things, like I know that international business, like I know that there's different cultural things, and so yeah. I, was, I was just curious about that. But and I'm to be perfectly honest because. You know, I was not alive in the <laughs> in the late '80s. I wasn't sure how established Nintendo's footprint was um, in the U.S. at yeah. that point, but it sounds like fairly established. Yeah. So, Nit, I I know more than I should about. So, Nintendo's actually <laughs> Nintendo goes back to the late 1800s. It's a very very old Japanese company. What? Originally, yes. Originally, it was playing card the the playing cards, and then in the in they started making like those like little electronic games, and then of and then of course they they moved into the kind of arcade game realm before the home consoles. Where in Japan, the the Nintendo in America, we know it as the Nintendo Entertainment System in Japan. I think it was called the Famicom, um, and and it came out there first. And it looks actually the Japanese Nintendo original Nintendo looks a little bit different than the U.S. Nintendo. Um, but yeah, I know, <laughs> I know more than I should about the history of Nintendo, as well as the console wars <laughs> yeah, apparently. Between, between Nintendo and Sega and all that. But yeah, um, but to your point, Callie, it was really more of a con. The contrast more was like even in Japan, it was like it's still yeah, there are cultural differences, but it was still like a business culture of an individual as a creator. They own the rights to this. They want to license it. They know how to deal with that because they were dealing with UK based companies as well. Like it was really an international film. But then there was this like black box of the Soviet Union. Like, how do you get intellectual property out of the Soviet Union? And you're not going to an individual creator. You're going through the government. And as Ben pointed out, that that uh, unveils like all sorts of potential for corruption. And um, and also just like the. This, they really get into kind of like KGB stuff and surveillance state and, you know, things beyond just the economics of it. And, you know, and right. that's one point I wanted to make, too, when you were talking about those themes, Ben, 
One thing I also thought was really cool that was very very subtle, um, but it was it was but I but I thought it was a neat was, was a neat feature of the film is the the, the programmer who made Tetris the the Russian guy was very young he was a young guy young programmer, and at one point in the film he takes um, he takes the protagonist the guy who's trying to license it I think his name's is it Frank Rogers or um, I can't Hank, remember Hank, Hank Rogers. Rogers yeah. Um, he takes him to this like he Hank's you know Hank goes to Moscow to try to figure out how he can license this game from the Soviet Union so he can basically get rights to it for that he can then license it to Nintendo and they can package it with the Game Boy. Um, but he wants to see like the real Moscow or whatever, and he he asks the the programmer to take him to like where he goes to party. And it was interesting because the contrast was. In the U.S. now, of course, you know, like the young alternative, like punk, sort of hip, like scene is very anti-capitalist. You know, often mm-hmm. it's very even like openly socialist. But it was the opposite, you know, in in the Soviet Union because they were living under the oppression of communism, and so you saw these young people at this kind of like party, like atmosphere, doing stuff, and they were like they wanted freedom. I mean, and so to, to like be punk there, like to be alternative there, to like be, to be like, to have that youthful, like activist energy there was about wanting the freedom that Americans have. So it was just kind of, an, and again, it was very, very subtle. It's just kind of almost showing it like a sociological aside, but it was like, you know, it, it made me think of like, people don't realize in this country, like how fortunate they are in a lot of ways, because um, you, you could just openly go out and do that stuff. Whereas they were doing it very, um, you know, undercover sort of, you know, sort of. They, they wouldn't, you know, with the KGB, they wouldn't be openly out there talking about wanting freedom, right? They had to do it like in this secretly in this speakeasy kind of um, party. So I just thought that was kind of a cool, cool feature, too, because we don't normally, at least I don't normally see markets and capitalism and freedom like associated with coolness <laughs> and like hipness and like with um mm-hmm. We might consider like you know the kind of like young energetic like punk scene, but clearly in and under communism like that would be fighting the system would be like fighting the you know the communist state. Yeah, I and it's it's interesting the way that um, I mean, kind of moving away from the movie, I it was it was a a, a moment of great pride for me, even though it was. Um, tarnished with like how we're not living up to our values but do you remember in like a couple years ago when uh i think it was hong kong was sort of like being retaken over by china and Mm. there was all those protesters and like this was not that long ago um but they were all these protesters in the streets of hong kong and they were all waving the american flag and and like to them it was just a symbol of like freedom and sort of like a mishmash of like freedom and liberal democratic capitalism for like being able to choose your own leaders and and just kind of a rejection. I took it sort of like a rejection of like that style of authoritarianism, like writ large. And, you know, I can't help but look at that and be like, I'm I'm so overjoyed that I'm from a place where that's how we're perceived internationally. And it's definitely something I hope we can live up to. Um 
despite the fact, despite all of our other problems. Um, it was, I just remember that. And it was very, it kind of, it seems like a similar tone there where like, that's, it still is the American flag still is like a symbol of freedom in at least some parts of the world. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. And then Tetris, I mean, obviously they didn't really, it, I, I think in a way this was a good, this was a good thing because it avoided any bad, you know, it avoided any kind of like trigger points of what people want to argue about America. They kind of made the movie not really make a whole lot of contact with America as like the, you know, exa- example of, of capitalism. Right. There was like no American government at all. Right, right. But at the state, so the focus really more was on like, here's why communism is bad. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. And, you know, because it because a lot of the movie took place with, you know, within the Soviet Union. Um, and so I thought it was it, it. I'm not saying they purposely did anything. I have no idea what the intentions of the of the filmmakers were, besides maybe just capturing a really cool, true story. Um, but but um, whether it was on purpose or not, I thought it did a nice job of like avoiding like any debate about this is America versus Russia or something like that. It was just like. No, this is like Russia. <laughs> this is like the Soviet Union um, versus like the free world, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think um, so. I haven't seen the film, but I, I, mean, I think you guys have sold me on, on certainly wanting to. <laughs> and I know we've talked before, like there has been a little bit of a resurgence on these. Um, maybe it's tapping into the nostalgia or tapping into other trends that are happening in, in film and TV and culture. But there's been kind of a slate of movies that are looking at telling these interesting business origin stories, whether they're kind of villainous and and evil and pulling the curtain back on that, or if they're just these really inspiring, um, you know, entrepreneurs or, or people who are able to bring, you know, something like Tetris to the forefront. I can think of of several movies in the past, you know, few years, and I know we have plans to see the new air movie about bringing the the michael jordan um nike shoes to market and i think you know for people who who do support markets who are interested in capitalism i do think one of the best ways of getting that message out is just through um these subtle and like you said clay like it maybe probably wasn't even on the radar of the filmmakers but just telling these human stories just these very creative passionate people and then letting viewers kind of draw those connections themselves to say we need a a, a government and a, and a country and a system that lets people do these these amazing things or in the case of where, where government's standing in the way or where there's corruption or whatever then we need something that 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 inhibits that um but i'm i'm personally in favor of, of just seeing more of these stories whether they're they're based on true things or, or they're more fictionalized um i think putting people at the forefront is really um obviously it makes for good movies good tv because we're people are interested in people but i also think that it makes for a persuasive argument for people in favor of markets yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, if you look at surveys of people's attitudes about different things, like you'll find that there's a lot more negativity towards capitalism than there is towards like entrepreneurship. <laughs> and so like an economist yeah. or even anyone who thinks about this stuff might might scratch their head and say, well, like, capitalism is the system that allows entrepreneurs <laughs> 
um, to be, you know, legally like entrepreneurs. Um, but I think a lot, to, you know, to your point about the human side of it, I, m my my most generous interpretation of the discrepancy in those findings is, I I think entrepreneurs represent in people's minds intuitively the people, and like we like we like small businesses, mm. we like people who go out and and try to create something and try to bring a product to the world that makes our lives better. Like people really like that. And I think for, you know, um, I think unfortunately capitalism has been like six, largely successfully, at least for a certain portion uh, of society branded as not really as being sort of divorced from people as being this like system that's just existing on it. That's like just self-perpetuating on its own and it's soulless and it's cold and it's, um, it's destructive to the environment. It's destructive to, you know, um, people's ability to live flourishing lives. And, um, and, and so I think, and I disagree with that, but I, I think that kind of messaging has been successful. But when you, when you make it more human, when you're like, no, it's about entrepreneurs, then all of a sudden people are like, oh yeah, we like entrepreneurs. <laughs> we like our, you know, yeah. we like the people who create things we like. We like buying stuff that we like. We like going to restaurants. We like going to gyms. We like buying products on Amazon. Um, when you think about it from that, like the personal use and the personal connection point of view, people love capitalism. But when they think about it in this kind of more dry, um, sort of sterile way, I, I think that's when you start to see like people like turn against it. And so I, I that's a long way of saying I totally agree. Um, humanizing it for and, and also the you know humanizing the complexities of of it and i think tetris again not to like <laughs> go back to tetris but i think tetris good did a good job of, of that too it's like capitalism just such a such a framework for for commerce and business and entrepreneurship it doesn't mean people are going to be good right it doesn't mean and you got to see that you got to see like um like kind of baddies in the <laughs> bad business people um and then you get to see like uh, i think more honest business you know people like um like the protagonist who is trying to be fair and trying to you know wanted to do this on on right. the up and who up recognize there could be a win-win right right um versus people who are like really let's figure out a way to like kind of exploit or take advantage of someone or not and so i i, I you know the human component is is important because it also means that you can obviously have people who are cheaters in business, people or people who want to sell stuff that they know is harmful or, or dishonest. I mean, that's that's part of business life as as well. Um, so we shouldn't. I think it, I think it would be a mistake just to you know to pretend that all you know economic freedom means everyone's going to be honest and great and what, it's going to be a utopian. Um, but it 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 um, but it certainly makes it more likely that people are going to have opportunities to do what they want. And to um, and as in, as in the case with Tetris, be able to make money on the thing, <laughs> be able to make a living on the thing they actually created. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's it's easier to relate to a story than to like an abstract system uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, well, I I think uh, hopefully all of our listeners can either watch it on Apple TV or they can go to a friend's house and watch it there. <laughs> it's certainly certainly worth the effort. Um, and with that, thank you everyone for listening. Clay, Callie, thanks for uh, for talking with uh, with me today and, and doing this interesting uh, different little different cultural convo. So anyone out there, let us know what you think of this format. Uh, feel free. We're on Twitter at perfectusm. 
or send us an email if you have ideas, things that you liked or hated or topics that you'd want us to discuss next time. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again later. Yeah. Thanks.